we come in this Grace Family Summit to think about the Word of God. I love the Word of God. The Word of God is like bread when I'm hungry. It's like water when I'm thirsty. Those are not original concepts with me, by the way. That's what Jesus said the Word of God was, and He knew it far better than I. But it's the truth. I, I always, when I stand here each week and open the Word of God, I, I've told you this before, and I hope you realize it's the truth. That's all I have to offer to you. My opinions, my ideas, my political leanings, all those are irrelevant to make any difference in your life. The only thing that really matters is what God's Word says. Now, granted, those things dovetail sometimes, and they do kind of intermingle sometimes, but the, 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 por- the purpose and the point is that from this pulpit and from our times of study, what my desire is is for you to hear the Word of God. Hear a word from God. Hear the truth of God. Because that's all that will change your life through Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when I stand here each week, you probably don't think about it. But I do think about this. Every time I stand here, I remember what's right down in the foundation, right under this pulpit. That we planted there when we built this building. Before the building ever looked like a building, it was just a slab of concrete and some steel sticking all around. But a Bible in a steel box planted right beneath, directly below this pulpit, opened to Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. I'm not not ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel that we preach. It's the gospel, His word that we proclaim. And and that's our whole purpose. So when we come to a family summit, why do we we determine that, well, we'll we'll center that around the Word? It's because it's only the Word that can change your life, and it's only the Word that can protect your family, and it's only the Word that can protect our church family. They all go together. They are all foundational upon the Word of God. And we want to see that. We want to understand that. We live in a day of, quite honestly, widespread Biblical illiteracy. Now, by that, I don't mean to say that if you walk up to somebody on the street and say, do you know who John the Baptist is? They won't say, oh, yeah, that's a biblical character. I I remember something about him somewhere. Or do you know who Isaiah is? Oh, yeah, he was a prophet. Or or do you know who Adam was? Yeah, I think he was that figurative symbol of of the beginning or something. I mean, they they know the characters to some degree, but they don't know the content. I've thought a lot this week about if I were the enemy, some people maybe in this town think I am, but if I were Satan himself, what would I do to try and, and just you know, convince Christians and convince people at Grace Baptist Church that, well, you know, it's, it's really not all that big a deal about the Bible. It, it's really not all that big a deal. Or churches and Christians nationwide. What would I do to try to convince them that, uh, that well, maybe, maybe it's not all just about the Bible? Well, I think the first thing, one of the things I'd try to do, and I've got hundreds of them probably, but I'll, I'll just give you a couple. I, I would try to, you know, kind of Christianize popular ideas. Christianize popular ideas. You know, I, like the... Uh, the, the whole idea of, of tolerance and acceptance. I would, I would somehow tie that in with a concept of, and make it 
Tolerance and acceptance is love, and love is a great virtue of Scripture. And so if you're going to really love, you've got to accept everything, tolerate everything, put up with everything. Not only that, you've got to accept everything as right. And, and I would get the church to kind of buy into that, to where they said, well, you know, that, yeah, we want, to, we want to accept everyone. It's where they are, no matter what they are, or who they are, or what their lifestyle is, or, or how they're living. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We just want to be accepted. I'd con- I try to Christianize popular ideas. Another popular idea I try to Christianize is patriotism. You know, Americanism. I mean, I'm a patriot. I love, an, I love America. But let me tell you something. That has nothing to do with, with what we do in here. We don't come here and raise the, wave the flag and say, oh, be good Americans, vote this, vote that, do all. I mean, I want you to vote, and I want you to study the issues, and I want you to vote right, which probably would mean like I vote if I were into that. But, but I want you to be a good citizen. But I want you to understand that is not a part of Christianity. And what we do in here, we do for the glory and the sake of Christ. I think if I were Satan and I were trying to really move the church away from the Word of God, I'd use music. I really would. I'd, I'd get some catchy tunes and some good beats, and, and I'd use music, and I'd use Christian words in them, but I'd just kind of slide in a little heresy here and there, a little false teaching here and there, a, a few things that are not true about the, the Word, true about Christ. I, I was going to give you some examples, but I'm not. Just think about that when you listen to, to music. You know, is the song glorifying the glory of God? Is it exalting Jesus Christ as the omnipotent king? Or is it presenting him as somebody who's just really needy and needs your help? That's, a, that's what I would do if I were Satan, I think. I would, I would also do songs with, with a lot of sentimentality in them. I, I would do songs like, you know, can't wait to get to heaven so I can see mama again. You know, my mom's in heaven, my dad's in heaven. I, I'm not looking forward to heaven to see them. That's not the reason I'm longing for heaven. I mean, it might be a nice thing if I see them. Hey, mom, hey, dad. But they're going to be focused on Christ. I'm going to be focused on Christ. I'm going to be focused on what God has done and is doing even continually in my life. I'm, I'm not going to worry about mama and daddy. I'm going to worry about the Lord. That's what Scripture says will be our focus. But I'd get some Christian singing sentimentality songs that just sound real sweet and, but, but really don't care about the glory of heaven or the glory of Christ. I'd, I'd get them thinking about babies and daddies and nice things like that as long as they're not focusing on him, the one and only. I think I'd create an atmosphere in churches that just make people feel good, make them feel comfortable. Never let them be confronted with sin. Never let them be confronted with the fact that they may not be in line with what God has called them to be. Let them, let them just be kind of happy that, that they're here and, and let them feel like they're doing God a favor for being there. I mean, I would just, just kind of develop an atmosphere where everybody feels good. And, and, and while I won't talk about sin, I'd certainly appeal to their sinful nature because we love to hear how good we are, don't we? We love to hear what a good person we are. I had someone tell me one time, that's how my sermons ought to concentrate on telling everybody what a good job they're doing and how good they are. Yep, if I were Satan, that's exactly what I'd want to have done. I'd want to redefine evil so that evil is what those people do 
good things are what we, what I, what we do. I'd speak in non-absolutes. I'd have the, the pastors, as best as I could, get them to talk about, well, I think this is true, and I, I believe this may be right, and I, I believe Paul said this, rather than I know. I, I would have them speak in non-absolutes, never in absolutes, never saying, I know Christ, and I know God is real. I said, well, I believe he's there, and I hope he's there, and I think he's there but never in absolute terms. I'd change definitions. The cults are good at that. You've got cults going around talking about Jesus. Jesus. We are the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints is one. And, and how can anybody not be a Christian if they have the name Jesus in their, in their name, right? problem is they've redefined Jesus. And the Jesus they worship is not the Worship, not the Jesus of the Scripture. Jesus of the Bible. Yeah, I think if I were Satan, I'd try to convince folks that there's a canon within the canon. This is the canon, by the way. You were in my New Testament class, you know that. If you're in systematic theology on Wednesday night, you would know that. But this is the canon. This is the accepted Word of God. This is the rule. This is the standard. This is what the church has said. It is, they, didn't, they didn't choose the canon. They didn't make the canon. They just accepted the canon. These are accepted, inspired, authoritative words of God. Word of God. But if I were Satan, I think I'd try to convince people, you know, this is well and good, and this book contains the Word of God somewhere in there. There's nuggets and there's kernels and there's truths, but not everything, for goodness sake, is there. I think one of the greatest shortcomings we make with our children is we neglect creation. Oh, we tell the story, but we tell the story in such a way that it sounds like a fairy tale. And then they get in school and they hear evolution and they hear that God's not necessary. As, uh, as Stephen Hawking said, God's not necessary for this all to exist. And everybody says, well, Stephen Hawking's the smartest man in the world, so he must be right. And then somebody like John Lennox can come along and say, you know, that's absolutely falsy, false, false reasoning. Faulty reasoning. Why, for Stephen Hawking, okay, how smart he is just to make a fiat statement. God is not necessary for all of this to be here. doesn't prove anything except that Stephen Hawking is a man who says in his heart there is no God. And you know what the scripture says about that. But I get them to say, well, there's a canon within the canon. You know, we don't have to really believe all that creation stuff. It's a nice story, but it doesn't have to be true. And, and, and so if that's not true, maybe the thing about Jesus dying on the cross, maybe, maybe that's not really necessary and true either. And if, if, if maybe he did die, but still in a grave somewhere. He's not resurrected. I mean, that's awfully strong. I mean, go on and on and say, I would get them to believe me that some of this is true, but not all of it. And then we become God because then we get to decide what is true and what is not true. We get to make that determination under those sets of rules. Well, i got about 15 more here, but I'm going to stop there. 
Because now I want you to hear the word. That's what I would try to do where I Satan, where I try to lead people astray. But I want you to hear what God's word says about God's word. This is, this is out of a passage that some of you heard Brother Todd deal with in the first hour. I'm just going to hit it and run from it since he's already dealt with it. But there's a lot in here that weren't here then. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 19. Turn with me in Psalm 19, specifically beginning in verse 7. The verse 6 verses talk about what we refer to as general revelation. General revelation is what you see around you. The trees, the, the air, the moon, the stars, the, the, the glory of all of creation. The psalmist says here that all of that declares the glory of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And he says, listen, everything you see ought to make you recognize and realize that there is a God. That's general revelation. I, I think the psalmist is saying, and I'll paraphrase him here in the Haynes paraphrase, anybody with a lick of sense can see God exist. That's Alabamian for you. Anybody with a lick of sense can see God exist. But he goes on and he talks about the, the, revel, the reveal, the revelation of God, the revealed truth of God in his word. And he uses several synonyms, but they're all talking about the word. Verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and, they're, and are righteous altogether. I mean, right there in those three verses, he gives six things. He says the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. Everything God declares to be true. Everything God gives testimony to be true. Everything that God says is how you ought to live is true. Every commandment he gives is true. Even fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. That is true. And the judgments of the Lord are true. I mean... Here's the thing I want you to understand. It is important for you to recognize who God is and what he has said. J. Siddle Baxter wrote years ago in a little book he wrote entitled Explore the Book. The book there, his book is Explore the Book about the Bible. And he says, no man's education is complete if he does not know the Bible. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a, that was made in the early 1900s, I think, that statement. No man's education is complete if he does not know the Bible. And yet we're raising up a generation today who say they are educated to the hilt and they know nothing about the Bible. They're biblically illiterate. He goes on to say, no Christian can live the full and effective life without an adequate grasp of the Bible. I think Baxter's right. I think what he's saying right in light of what, what the psalmist is saying here in, in, in uh, Psalm 19. 
7 through 9. And then he goes on to talk about the value of God's Word. He said, the, the Word of God, these, these law, precepts, testimony, commandments, fear, and judgments, they are all more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They are sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Wow. For the believer... The psalmist says the Word of God ought to be your greatest treasure and your greatest pleasure above everything else. Greater than gold, greater than great money in the bank, greater than anything you can buy or possess or hoard or hold for a rainy day. The, the Word of God is, ought to be and should be for the believer more desirable than gold and treasure than much fine gold. It ought to, the Word of God ought to be your greatest treasure. I'm sure that if you have treasure, it may not be gold, maybe it may just be stocks and bonds and you know savings accounts and all. But but I guarantee you, if you have that, if you're a normal person, at least on a fairly regular basis, you look at it. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Do I need to change it? Do I need to shift some funds? Do I, need, I want it to get bigger. I want my treasure to get bigger. I mean, we concentrate on that. We, 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 we look at that. Do you look at the Word the same way? Is it your greatest treasure? Or your greatest pleasure? It's, it's sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I mean, that's the sweetest thing the psalmist could think about. sweetest, most pleasurable thing. I, I don't know about I love honey. I, I like to, I, I've stopped because of sugar content and stuff like that, and, uh, you know. But I used to love to go in and find the honey jar and just get a big old spoon and just dip down in it and walk around the house just kind of eating the honey. I mean, it's sweet. It's, it brings pleasure. Psalmist says that the word ought to be sweeter to you than honey. Now listen to verse 11. Moreover, by them, that is by God's word and God's words, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Not only is it to be your treasure and to be your pleasure, it's to be your protection. That's what he's saying here. Your, your servant is warned. If the Word of God is filling your heart, if you are hiding God's Word in your heart, and you're going along and a temptation comes or a danger comes, God will use that Word dwelling within you to speak to that issue, and you will be warned that that is about to bring you down. That that is sin. By His Word, you are warned. Now, folks, let me tell you. You can't say, I'll take my Bible with me, and if I see temptation, then I'll immediately start looking for the answer. It's too late. That, that's why the same psalmist said in Psalm 119, in, in that long chapter, and Scott read a part of that this morning, but in, the, in, in verses 9 through 11, he said, How can a young man keep his way pure? And by the way, this relates to an old man or a young girl or an old, old, older woman. Boy, you've got to be careful. 
How can someone, anyone of any age, keep his or her way pure? By keeping it according to your word. By keeping it according to your word. Okay. Got a word right here. Got the word right here. When the situation comes, I'm going to run and see how I ought to keep it. Too late. He goes on. He says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Lord, fence me in. Protect me. Keep me within the bounds of your word. Now here's the key. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you, against him. Your word have I treasured in my heart, my innermost being. I'm not talking about the, the blood pump that's in your chest. I'm talking about the innermost being. Your word, your true, infallible, inerrant, authoritative gospel word have I hidden, have I treasured, have I stored in my heart that I might not sin against you. For blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. It goes on and on. The point I want you to see here is there's the key to defeating sin in your life. It, it's not being a do-gooder. It's not being a holier than thouer. It's not being someone who says, I can do this. I'll grit my teeth and I, I won't sin. You'll sin. It's treasuring the Word of God in your life, in your heart. It's making it central. It's knowing it. I think it does relate there to memorization. But I think it's more than memorization. I had a college professor that was as pagan and as lost and as immoral as the day is long. And he could quote Bible verses, Bible sections at length. But he had no reality of the person of Christ in his life. He could quote it, but it didn't protect him. Because he didn't know the Lord of the Word. That would do that. So the psalmist David, he says, listen, just treasure. I've treasured your word. I've stored your word. I've hidden your word in my heart. Oh, Lord, it's your word that will protect my heart. We tend to think of the heart as the affections. We tend to think of the heart as, as the feelings, if you will. David says God's word will protect those feelings. It'll, it'll give you the right feelings if you've hidden his word in your heart. But now I want you to see what Paul says about it, because this is important too. Paul, in writing to the Philippian Christians, said this. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And we're close to being done. In Philippians chapter 4, Writing to this church at Philippi about a lot of joy, about a lot of excitement about what's going on there. They had their problems. Eudodian and Sintashi couldn't seem to get along for some reason. And 
He challenged the church to get them together, help them to see eye to eye, help them to come together in unity. They, had some, they weren't a perfect church, but they were a church of joy. And Paul had joy because of them. But I want you to hear what he says as he begins to close out this book in, in verse 6 of chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension or all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, he doesn't mention the word there, does he? He talks about prayer. Prayer and supplication. said, by prayer and supplication, let all your needs be made known to God. He starts out, verse 6, in an interesting way. He says, be anxious for nothing. Basically, let me give you that translation in, in 21st century Somersetian. Don't worry, folks. Don't worry. But bring your needs to God. Worry is the greatest stealer of peace. You know that? If I start worrying about something, I can't sleep. I can't eat right. I, I just I, my whole my whole world is topsy turvy. If I'm worrying about something, and and my personality is a worry yeah, that's a worrying personality. I'm sure none of you struggle with that. And I, I sometimes worry that I don't have anything to worry about. You know, things just going so well. Something surely a shoe's going to drop sooner or later. I mean, that's sin, by the way. Because that's saying to God, God, I don't think you really got this thing under control. I really don't think you're in charge here. I'm in charge, so i got to worry about it. Paul says, don't do that. Take your needs, take your hurts, take your supplications, take your prayers to him and leave it there. He's the one that's in control anyway. And when you do that by prayer, the peace of God, which surpasses all sorts of understanding and comprehension, will guard your hearts and will also guard your minds in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't leave it there. Then he gets to the Word. Listen to the next verses. Finally, brethren, I love Paul because he's a lot like me. He'll say finally 15 times. He'll never mean it. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, good reputation, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, look at this, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Now, all he's doing there is describing the Word of God in, in a similar way that the psalmist described it in Psalm 19. Excuse me. It's the word that is honorable. It is the word that is true. It is the word that is right. It is the word that is pure. It is the word that is lovely. It is the word that has a good reputation. It is the word that is excellent. It is the word that is worthy of praise. So let your mind dwell, concentrate, focus, meditate, devour these things. You see, 
Satan tells me we don't have time for that. While we've got ball games to go to, and we've got, we've got parties to go to, and, and we've got stuff we have fun with, our greatest treasures and our greatest pleasures, we, we chase after those. Why We even let them interfere with worship sometimes. I mean, you know, and, and Satan loves that because as we let it interfere with worship, it's saying to everybody around us, you know, worship's not that important unless there's, uh, unless there's just nothing else to do. Paul said, dwell on my word. He says, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See, we don't don't sense the God of peace with us because so many areas were biblically illiterate, even within the church. Certainly our nation and our world is biblically illiterate. As I was reading news, watching news, hearing all sorts of things over the last few weeks, and this week particularly, there was one verse that just kept flying back to me over and over again. It's found in Jeremiah's gospel. And, and Jeremiah just talking about the people, talking about their situation. Remember, it's something he, he says twice. In Jeremiah 6.18, you just write it down, look at it later. You don't, you don't have to Jeremiah 6, I've written down the wrong text there, how about uh, 8.12, let's look at it. Jeremiah 8.12 says, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. And they did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. And the time of their punishment they shall be brought down, says the Lord. It hit me yesterday as I was watching the Kentucky Derby. That's the time of the year I really feel like a Kentuckian. I sing along with my old Kentucky home. I don't even put Alabama in in place of Kentucky. I love the song. It's it's an exciting event. And I'm watching there, and all of a sudden they have to put a drag queen on TV in the in the news, uh, present it, you know, and, and kind of glorify it, kind of. And, and everybody laughed, and everybody thought, ha, ha, ha. And I thought, wow, nobody's blushing. Nobody's ashamed. Heard a leading Christian artist this week, you know, declare, uh, oh, well, I, you know, I don't see anything wrong with same-sex marriage. What could be wrong with that? 
Now, and, and he says, don't, don't quote me Bible verses. I don't care what the Bible says. This is a cultural thing. One of the top-selling Christian groups, the lead singer. If you listen to the radio today, you'll hear them probably. I have others saying, you know, we need to get away from God's Word. We need to just go along with the culture, go along with society. Folks, society is going on a trajectory that's absolutely contrary to God's Word. The family in America is going on a trajectory which is totally contrary to God's Word. And if we're not very careful, the church will take that same slope. And we'll have no prophetic voice. We'll have no declaration of truth. We'll not look any different. Our hearts will give it themselves over to the affections of sin. Our minds will give themselves over to that which is vogue for the day. It'll change. We'll just go with it. That's why as we come to this family summit, we see it's so important to say to you who are parents and you who are grandparents and you who are aunts and uncles, as well as to you who are are young people and children, God's Word is truth. And God's Word is all that will guard your heart. God's God's Word is all that will guard your minds against error. We are to walk in it. Folks, if you brought your Bible to church this morning, and you're going to go home this afternoon and you're going to lay it down and say, I know right where it'll be next Sunday morning when I need it. Don't anybody move my Bible. Be right here. You've been deceived. You've been deceived by the one who would like to see you keep out of your mind and out of your heart as much of that truth as he possibly can keep you from getting. You will rationalize your sin, and your children will see you rationalizing your sin, and they will say, well, not only does it not matter what the Word says, see what mom and dad are doing, that's okay too. You know, I've watched this whole thing of the, the marriage debate. And folks, I, I'm not anti-homosexual. I'm not anti-whatever. I, I want them to hear the gospel. I want them to know Christ. I want them to be in church with us. I hope some are here today. They're caught up in that lifestyle. But I've watched this whole marriage debate where you redefine marriage, and, and, and I've watched it for... My, I'm older than the younger folks here, and a lot of young couples, I saw a statistic this morning, 50% of those under 30 years of age in the United States think that, actually it's 51%, think there's same-sex marriage is perfectly normal. It's because what we started just not wanting to talk about in one generation becomes accepted by the next generation. 
we're not just concerned about you who are sitting in this room this morning. We're concerned about the generations to come, your grandchildren, my grandchildren, even you who are here as just children, your grandchildren. Those are the generations that follow. And unless the church of Jesus Christ quits playing religious games and focuses itself again on God's Word and God's Word alone, just say this, I'm glad I'm 63 and won't be around to see the final results of that if the church fails. May God help us in our families, in our homes, in our church, and wherever we are to not just lay this aside and say, oh, it'll be, be there for me next Sunday so everybody can see me carrying it. But may we open it. May we meditate on it. May we concentrate on it. May we say, God, teach me your truth. May we treasure it in such a way that we may not sin against him. Let's pray together. This is the written Word of God. Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is who applies the Word of God to those who are in Christ. I just want to pray first of all for you this morning if you're here and not a believer. You don't, you say, the Bible, that's an ancient book. Lord, I want to ask for your Holy Spirit to move in the hearts and lives of unbelievers here. Let them see that your truth is eternal, not temporal. Let them see, Lord, that, that you are the eternal God, having no beginning and no ending. You are the self-existent. God, who has spoken. We're so grateful, Lord, that you are there and you are not silent, but you have spoken. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would speak to the hearts and lives of, of men and women and young people here this morning that do not know you. That your Holy Spirit would draw them to Christ this day. Pray for others, Lord, who are professing Christians, but who have been deceived. Their understanding of truth is more derived from Joel Osteen or Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Phil than it is from your word. All three of which that I just mentioned are in contrary to your word. Father, I pray that you would draw us away from false teachers to your truth. Father, I pray for all of us that our hearts and our minds would be set upon, focused upon your word alone.
Father, work in our hearts. We ask you to work by your Holy Spirit. Teach us. Show us your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.